Welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast for the 16th of April with myself, Andries Vantanar, and my colleagues, Harry Morgan, Peter White, and Simon Thompson. It's funny, Harry, you and I were talking about uh, hydrogen about three or four weeks ago, and I was saying, do you think a new catalyst could come along so that we don't need as much energy to produce hydrogen? And you say, I don't know, I'm not quite sure, maybe. There will be work on catalysts. And then you've written this story. Yeah, this story, it was it was done in something that I hadn't necessarily done sort of extensive research in before, and that was sort of the environments in which these catalysts perform and what how they perform best. Essentially, Kyoto University in Japan essentially have come up with this catalyst that they're claiming could increase production rates of hydrogen 30-fold, which is, I mean, it's not quite specified what they mean by that. Is it 30-fold in terms of production per dollar? Is it production per, per second? So it's not quite clear what they mean by that at this point, but... Uh, the technology itself at the moment seems very promising. Uh, essentially, it's a, it's a 60 nanometer wide catalyst, which very much looks, if you actually look at the picture in the article, looks very much like a piece of coral. I, I suppose trying to explain how it works, first th- thing to say, obviously, is when you're going through electrolysis, you've obviously got two reactions taking place. So you've got uh, the hydrogen evolution reaction, obviously producing the hydrogen, which is what you want, and the oxygen evolution reaction, which is needed to sort of keep the reactions sort of balanced and and moving at the right speed, basically. Hydrogen evolution reactions work best in acidic conditions. Basically, you've got higher proton concentrations, which is obviously better for uh, the production of hydrogen. And uh, that's why we've seen a real sort of boost in uh, proton exchange membrane electro- electrolyzers over sort of the past few months, really. But also, obviously, you need a way to uh, you need a way for that to go as quickly as possible. But that needs to be balanced by a really fast oxygen evolution reaction. And the way that we do that is through a catalyst. Uh, often with sort of a high over potential, which is often the bottleneck of the actual production speed. I mean, this is what we were talking about several weeks ago with uh, H2Pro's thermal approach to this and sort of overcoming that bottleneck of oxygen evolution. Uh, the problem is, is that when you've got these acidic environments that are good for hydrogen production, the optimum catalyst for the oxygen production can't be used because they essentially dissolve in that environment. Um, so they sort of basically compromise by using a more durable catalyst, which is less active. Often this is something like uh, iridium oxide rather be using something called ruthenium, which is what these Kyoto University academics have done. It's much lower cost and it can produce the oxygen much more quickly, but as I said, often degrades. So there's a sort of synthesis between the two. Although I think in the case of the one that Kyoto actually produced, it's very high um, density. But but just summarising everything you've said, we need to say that a lot of university departments are looking at how catalysts change these ratios some of them are going to enter commercial production and they are going to lower the amount of energy you need to make hydrogen. And that's the main price problem, the price of, of energy that keeps the price of hydrogen high. And, and so we're going to see it change dramatically in the next three to four years. Whether it's this Kyoto invention or, or many, many others like it, that's going to happen. That's a shame that Bloomberg didn't have any chemists on their team. We've got 65 economists. They needed a chemist because then they wouldn't be predicting this blind view that hydrogen can't possibly get cheaper than X, which we keep hear, hearing from them. And, and it can't do that before 2030. They're wrong. And, and that's just the, the thing I keep coming back to in change. The, the things are ideas are, are bubbling under in universities all the time and suddenly they get trendy suddenly they get worth money people are pushed to the front and then suddenly companies are interested in commercializing these things and that's what's happening in hydrogen and that process always takes place it's it's fairly straightforward there's a conduit between pure research and, and commercial research and it widens 
as there's a real commercial viability uh, possible. Yeah, I think the sort of, uh, well, I mean, I was reading an IEA report and researching the steel report that um, I'm writing at the moment a few a few days ago, and, and they're always talking about these technology readiness levels, um, obviously referring to sort of academic studies in sort of the really early stages. But I think that what is really underestimated in the energy sector is how quickly that they can sort of move through these. I mean, we've already seen through the Kyoto University that they're already speaking to private companies and they're working on actually commercialising their product basically from the start. So it could very much be something that does enter commercial production and suddenly really work its way into the labs at sort of ITM Power and, and the likes of the other electrolyzer manufacturers. So when there's this obvious problem with OER catalysts, which is the oxygen evolution reaction, um, then that's where a lot of academic folks will go. And rather than researching it in their own R&D teams, electrolyzer manufacturers will just continue to partner with universities and really push for sort of accelerated development of sort of academic principles. If hydrogen comes down to half a dollar per kilogram at some point everyone's going to forget all this discussion and all this hype and they're going to forget oil completely that's a source of fuel and they forget to get forget gas more than anything yeah i think that's the key one is gas and it's just how quickly hydrogen can fall in relation to gas and how many sort of stranded gas assets people sort of continue using it'll be really interesting to see how those are yet compensated as hydrogen really does accelerate to cost parity much quicker than people expect. I mean, it was ridiculous this week that we really saw Bloomberg again say that, yeah, hydrogen is not going to be, green hydrogen is not going to be competitive until maybe 2030. It's, yeah, I mean, it's just incorrect. And I think it's just sort of trying to hide behind what they've said in the past. And not- For our customers, any of our customers listening to this, don't make decisions, financial decisions, based on the advice of companies who've spent their lives in a, an industry that doesn't change and who can't themselves change. By the Rethink Energy forecasts, they will make more sense and they will see you through an energy transition rather than the same uh, same old, same old for 135 years, which is what Bloomberg and Wood McKenzie are used to. But we'll keep, we'll keep an eye on that uh, as I'm sure things will come up week to week. Um, interestingly, I, re- I remember one of the first stories we wrote, I mean, two and a half, three years ago, someone pointed out um, a carbon nanotech uh, layer was going to drop on top of silicon, uh, uh, on top of uh, PV silicon at some point, and allow us to harvest 80% of all the energy hitting a solar panel, and that commercial, it wouldn't be commercial for at least five years. In three to four years, we're going to see this, we're going to see things outstrip in solar, outstrip perovskites coming out of university. As soon as money, trillions of dollars, are thrown at a subject, all all of this innovation just comes flying out. And the first to land and become bankable just win the market. I don't want to go on about uh, the solar uh, numbers out of Jinko and Trina, apart from the fact that they, their numbers, the only new numbers of Jinko Solars, Trina and Canadian Solar came out a few weeks ago. But the, the, the trend is obvious that 26, 27% more um, sales every year, uh, normally for roughly the same number of dollars. Uh, that means the solar industry is continuing to lower the cost of solar. Uh, I don't think we need to take any more than that. From, from that article and we want to actually have a look at um, Australia. Who wants to walk me through the Australian piece? Uh, well, I'm not really sure where to start. Um, we did a country profile on Australia. It's, uh, I guess the, the interesting point is that there's a huge contrast between the political government at the federal level and like the rest of the country, whether it's corporations or 
the regulators or the local governments, they're all powering ahead with some uh, dramatic increases in renewable energy. And the federal government is still dragging its feet on committing to a climate target. I think it might even still be trying to salvage the, the gas plants and the coal plants, but I can't see that they'll actually succeed with that. They'll probably give up eventually. What do you think? They'll get unelected. Hmm. I think I think governments don't lead, they follow. They do what voters tell them is important. At the last election, where these got voted in, there's a lot of talk about uh, climate change. It didn't come through in the vote. Uh, and this was the first climate change election. We now, but if, if, if they could vote again, they'd vote this government out tomorrow as being blind to the, the forest fires that have raged throughout Australia and being culpable. Um, and I think that's effectively what happened to Donald Trump as well. There's a big geographical political disparity where they have all these rural voters, but in, in New South Wales and Victoria, it's, it's left wing. Uh, and they're they're pushing ahead with the renewables and, and the corporations are pushing ahead with the renewables. So they might have the voters against the climate change agenda, perhaps for now or, or not not any longer. But already the, the elite is sort of pushing ahead with it. Yeah, the money community is mm. saying, let's make money out of this. And the, the government is saying the opposite. That position doesn't, not tenable. Both the voters and investors want renewable energy. It's only the politicians that don't. I mean, that's, that's just not a tenable position. But I mean, we're going to have to put up with this government for two or three more years. Why is uh, why is it so coal heavy still? Because uh, most Western countries have have more gas than coal now, don't they? It's because of their export. One of their one of the biggest. Um, I think it's something like five percent of GDP. I mean, perhaps that was Indonesia, but Australia is very similar. Is by exporting coal. You know, so they want their coal industry to be healthy because it, 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 they think it drives prosperity. Politicians get stuck with the same old agenda. Jobs, tax cuts, or new taxes, or balancing the budget. Those are the same things that they go round and round and round discussing. When a new thing like, like climate change enters the, the discussion, they just want to push it aside and carry on having the same debate they've had for 30, 40 years, which is one side wants to uh, tax more heavily and spend more heavily and the other side wants to tax not at all and spend almost nothing and keep costs down and that doesn't matter whether you call them left or right wing that's true in australia it's true in most of europe it's true in america it's difficult to see the shape of that argument inside places like china but in in most other um, capitalist societies that's always the discussion and suddenly climate change comes along and they don't know how to deal with it Simon, let's hear from you. What, 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 what caught your eye? Well, I was very interested in aviation. So there's a couple of items about aviation, one about hydrogen and one about... I, I thought Harry made a great point, which is if, if you ban flights, which, which have a train service, which is two and a half hours long, you're banning all the practice areas for hydrogen flight or for electric flight. I think that's a really important unintended consequence politicians getting involved um, where perhaps they don't belong. It's really easy for politicians to sort of pat themselves on the back for what they're deeming as a real headline policy. And it's obviously a really sort of, um, I suppose it's quite a draconian measure really to actually ban something outright. And obviously they've got reasons behind doing it in terms of there are obviously emissions from domestic flights. But I think in terms of sort of the long uh, long duration of, of the, France, the French aviation industry, there will be French aviation indefinitely. And... I th and there needs to be innovation in that sector. So I think actually banning 
short haul flights, which is where the sort of point of entry is for these innovators, especially in um, hydrogen fuel cell aircraft or hydrogen powered aircraft. If that short haul market is taken away, then there's no sort of point of entry for the developers of the technology. And I think that really damages France's hopes of actually having a, a large sort of manufacturer in the country. Obviously, I think we'll see people maybe like Zero Avia developing in the UK, um, and then that will be something that will then be exported into France. Obviously, France are losing that sort of first mover advantage in that sector. Obviously, it's just a, a headline policy, I think, from France that will really restrict their development. I think the, the worst thing about it really is that if you'd gone for a complete ban on domestic flights, that sort of makes sense. I think the 2.5 hour train journey tra- trade-off that they've come up with, I mean, will have no real impact on the country's carbon emissions. I think it will impact something like 6.6% of emissions from domestic flights only. So that's less than a percent of French aviation industry. So the fact that it's such a minimal carbon saving for such a massive loss potentially to uh, the future of French aviation, I think that's just it's just a massive mistake. And obviously, I, I imagine they can adjust that regulation to not include zero uh, emissions flights at some point if there's enough lobby power. The problem with European governments, especially France, is this tendency to want to do things in a big way. And that means the same organisations get asked to do everything. So when Airbus declares we'll have a hydrogen burning aircraft that can transport 200 people come 2035, they go, oh, well, we don't need people like Zeravia, so we can just wait. But they can't just wait. But but there is a tendency for them to like doing it with with big organisations. And they'll they'll bail out Air France and then Air France France will buy, use that money to buy the Airbus aircraft that that burn hydrogen come 2035 and everything will be rosy. But it won't because they'll have no competitors (laughs) because all the the little uh, guys will have lost all their short haul flights. All of people that, that want to introduce zero emissions technologies from startups will will have left France and they'll be working in countries that are more friendly. And that they end up with this government sort of centred, heavy industry, big investment decisions all the time, because they're simpler. You know, if we just invest in one company, they can do it all. But that's not how capitalism works. And it doesn't drive down prices and it doesn't keep everyone honest. And if some a large organisation goes down the wrong route, doesn't give you an opportunity for a rival or a second rival to go down the right route. And it, it, it can spell disaster. The perfect policy really would have been some sort of tax on these um, polluting flights in, in France. I think an outright ban probably yeah, will restrict um, these innovative companies. What I think really would make sense in terms of if you're, if you're trying to punish short haul flights is some sort of takeoff tax, really, so that you pay sort of a flat fee, as a carbon tax if you're on a polluting flight if you're ta- uh, for every takeoff basically because that will obviously have a proportionally much larger impact on short-haul flights and long-haul flights. What about giving the aircraft back some of the longer train journeys and getting rid of trains for long distance and say only zero emissions planes can go long distance journeys um, and we will close the rail routes that are long distance most most rail routes, of course, are electrified over long distance, so so we don't gain anything from that. Um, but it, it just seems to be if you're just giving all this extra business to the train companies, what what are they giving up? They're giving up nothing, uh, except that they they're still how many is it? Two thousand trains in Europe that are still not electric. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's largely not in France, though. Uh, I think the French rail system needs quite a lot of upgrading. It is fairly carbon free. I think the fact that the emissions, uh, also the energy requirements per passenger on a on a train is so much lower than a plane, I think that actually punishing the uh, rail industry would wouldn't, be, make sense, yeah. wouldn't make any sense, I think. And I obviously, I think using a, a train for a two and a half hour journey is far preferable to a, fi- uh, a flight. And I think that's something that uh, will need to be the case in the long run. But I think the, obviously, hydro- it's, it's mainly this point of entry problem. I mean, Zero Arabia's aircraft, for instance, can only fly will only be as far around 800 kilometres by 2024. And that's not much further than the, the limit set by this two and a half hour, right. this two and a half hour ban. Uh, 